0: Hello and welcome to the Catching Health Podcast. I'm Diane Atwood, your own personal health reporter, and today I am definitely going to get personal. We'll be talking about caring for someone with dementia with one of the world's experts on the topic. My mom had Alzheimer's disease, which is the leading cause of dementia. She passed away in September 2016, a few weeks after her 90th birthday. I was fortunate that she never forgot who I was. But there were so many other things that were challenging and difficult. I even wrote a blog post about some of them. 20 things to know if you love someone with dementia. Every single one of them, I learned the hard way. And most of them, I had to learn over and over again. You can read the post on my blog at catchinghealth.com. So I recently met a very dynamic woman. Who can teach us way more than twenty things about loving and caring for someone with dementia? Tipa Snow, welcome, Tipa. It's great to be with you. I love your name. So, is there a story behind that? There
1: is. Uh, when I was a teenager, I worked with children who had autism, and I had a little boy named Michael who couldn't say. Tina, he said Tipa, which was my given name, T E E N A. So Michael would call me Tipa, tell me Tipa, Tipa. And he was my good bud, and we hung out together a good bit. And so over time, all my friends started calling me Tipa, and then my family started calling me Tipa. So <laughs> ultimately, everybody called me Tipa, so I legally changed it.
0: Great story. So, how did you come to be an expert on dementia?
1: Hmm. Well, my grandfather moved in when I was very young, and it turned out my mom was not one of the people who learned your 20 ways to help, and she was not a particularly good caregiver. She was a fantastic phys ed teacher and a terrific um, cheerleading coach and an amazing woman, but not a good caregiver. So it turned out that my grandfather and I got along a lot better than my mom and my grandfather got along. And so I ended up being one of his primary care partners. Um, And so I sort of learned a little bit firsthand. And then my grandmother on the other side ended up with a dementia. And and over time, I've always been curious about the brain. Um, And it just turned out that it was a place that I felt I could help and make a difference because my brain could manage to sort of see their side of the street and then understand what was going on for them a little bit better so I could help people who are trying to help a little bit better.
0: Hmm. And you went on to become
1: an occupational therapist. Yeah, I did that and then worked in geriatrics in a whole variety of settings um, and worked in head injury and stroke rehab. So I got to learn a lot about what brains do and what brains don't do and what happens when brains get hurt.
0: Well, so after many years, then you have developed a special or a specific approach to care techniques, which you call positive approach. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So what people tend to focus on a
1: lot is what people who are living with dementia or brain change are losing. But what we tend to forget is, well, yeah, they're losing things, but what are they keeping? Because the combination is what challenges us sometimes. It's What they can't do combined with what they still can do that creates the the difficulty. So instead of just looking at what's missing, so they can't remember the word for something, but they still want the something. They still can think about something, but they can't figure out how to name the something. So how do I help figure this out given where the missing pieces are and where the staying pieces are? And so if you were to say, I need something, the normal reaction would be, well, what do you need? Because what I'm actually saying is, how can I help you? In this case, I would say, you need something. In other words, let them know I got the message. And then now, is it something something you want to eat or something else? Hmm. And what I just did is put it into categories. And even people fairly far in a disease, if they still have language skills at that point, can do an either or choice. And So I gave you a choice and you feel like we're still in this together. And then you say, well, well, yeah, something to eat. I said, Oh, Oh, something hot or cold. Now what I'm able to do, it's like a 20 questions game, but it feels more equal rather than, well, what do you want? And the person can't give me the answer. Well, that's the missing piece.
0: You make me think of interactions that I had with my mother, uh, it's like sometimes I could tell that there was something wrong and she could never, yeah. ever tell me what it was wrong. She would say, yeah. I'm not sure. I just have a feeling.
1: You just have a feeling. So something feels wrong. Does it feel wrong in your body or does it feel wrong in your brain?
0: Wow. I could have used you right by my side. <laughs> Yeah, because, I
1: mean, all of a sudden we're moving a conversation forward rather than feeling stuck. And when I feel stuck and you feel stuck, it puts us in a very awkward situation because I'm supposed to be here to help and you're looking for help. But when we can figure out how to work together, then we actually use what you have and what you don't have, you don't have in that moment. Now, the weird thing about dementia, and I think this is what really for many people is the ultimate frustration is sometimes you can, and sometimes you can't, and there's no predicting it.
0: Right. Like there, I would call them good moments or bad moments. Yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: I mean, and so when sometimes your brain chemistry is just right, you can do these remarkable things, just like, and this is the phrase that gets used, just like you used to be. And it's like, yeah, only I can't stay there. And it's not by choice. It's just, that's the disease. That's the condition. But we don't find joy in those moments. They actually cause more frustration because then when they don't happen, we want them so badly that we almost demand them of
0: the person. You know, when you mentioned joy in the moment, that was one of the lessons that I learned Mm -hmm. is that my mom felt real joy in tiny little moments. And I realized that's what was important. Give her that joy in the moment and maybe she'll have the emotional memory from it. And just, uh-huh. and then let it go. Like all I had to do was yeah. give her a smile and my God, the woman would melt. Yeah. And yeah. the smile worked in a lot of situations too, uh, to derail some tricky. Situations. Well, yeah.
1: Well, here's the thing that you did that is really critical is you said something about, you know, you thought it might make emotional memories. Well, once again, what they can't frequently do is form factual, detailed memories but what people living with dementia in many, many forms can do is form an emotional feeling about an interaction. So I don't remember why I'm angry with you, but I am angry. And I, my brain struggles to figure out what that could be. And unfortunately, what it could be is <clears throat> that you made, you made me feel bad about taking a shower or a bath or changing my clothing or going to the bathroom. And all you were trying to do was help, but now you made me angry. And then my brain goes, well, she probably stole money. You know, when she was 15, she took stuff out of my purse. So, yeah, suddenly bringing up this stuff and you're going, well, mom, I didn't take anything. Yes, you did. You stole from me. You always steal things. And it's like, where are we going here? And the hard part is to let go of the idea that it's in this moment that I'm talking about and realize, ooh, that triggered some old stuff. Um, for both of us sometimes. Oh, and yeah. yet we can also trigger that positive thing just as easily if we choose something different.
0: Well, I remember a couple of classic moments, but there was one moment, my mother and father had a couple of rough times, let's mm. say, mm-hmm. and uh, he's passed away from several years ago. And one day she was looking at his picture and she was saying mm. he was a wonderful man. And then she said, there were some hard times weren't there. And Mm. I I, I sort of kept quiet. And then she said, but you know what, I think I'm gonna not go there.
1: Whoa. Yes, she made made
0: that choice. And I thought that was remarkable.
1: Yeah. Well, what's really interesting is I'm imagining that in her life, there were many times she let herself go there. And then what happened after that was not this wonderful feeling, and it's like in her impairment, her brain went, "That's dangerous territory. Let's let's not do that."
0: I was the oldest of eight kids, and oh uh, my heavens! <laughs> and so, the memory of my um, being born and being a toddler seemed to be the strongest memory. So that's where she often went, even though it was many decades ago. <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, but then there was also that place where she was in control before life got really complicated
0: Hmm.
1: and where she could really be the person she probably loved being, which is helping you discover the world and seeing the wonder in your eyes and sort of figuring out, oh, look, look at that, and repeating things over and over again because you love to repeat them.
0: And so when she did do that a lot, and even some of the people she lived with who had Alzheimer's got mm-hmm. tired of listening to her tell the same story about me being born. Um, you you let them go there, and you sort of enter their world with them? Well,
1: yeah, and the really cool part is if you do it well, you can actually move her to a different, different little spot. Because there was more than one story over time she would tell, but that was one of her favorites because it was strong emotion. That first child being born is is a pretty emotional event for most women. And um, after we have the baby there for a while, it's thinking I'll never have another child. Oh my God, what was I thinking? <laughs> but, then, but then it wears off and then there's this, oh, but it was such a cool outcome. I mean, look at this amazing creature and how wonderful, look at her, She now she can do this. Um, so there's this emotional sort of love-hate relationship with the birthing process. But what's cool is when she says, and she was the most beautiful child, and yeah, Diane, your girl. Now, when she was a little older, did she get in trouble, or was she a good kid? Oh, okay. Because I bet she also told stories about when you were a little bit older, some of the
0: crazy things you did, and she had to keep you safe. And Those were my siblings, Tepa, not me. <laughs>
1: Of course not. I'm also an older child. <laughs> we never did things like that,
0: right? No, no, no. So, I met you at Stroudwater Lodge, which is an independent and assisted living community in Westbrook, Maine, a few months ago. Yeah. You were doing yeah. a presentation for the public, but you were also there doing some training for staff who work at their memory care facilities. They're called Avita. Do you yeah. te- do you teach the same thing to everyone?
1: I do. I do variations on the theme, but essentially we all need some really basic understanding of what's going on with human brains when people develop dementia. And if I'm going to try to do personal care with you, uh, care for your body, the house that you live in, um, I need to get permission. And so whether I'm a family member or a staff member, um, it's not my house. And yes, family, you can feel a certain relationship, but there are people who would prefer to have somebody not family care give. And there are people who would prefer family, but sometimes no matter what I might want, it's not possible. It just doesn't work. And so everyone needs to understand me and what what I am and where I am and who I am, if they're going to be my support person. Um, so yeah, I cover a lot of the same and then I do some variation depending on the audience.
0: What I thought was One of the more memorable things about your presentation was the role-playing. You would become someone with dementia, or you would have a person in the audience do that, and then you'd act out scenarios. Why do you do that? One of the things we know about
1: human brains is that they handle new information best if they get it in a multiple way. Just hearing something, or just seeing something, or just knowing something isn't being able to do something about it. And my ultimate goal is that we help people learn how to do something different, say something in a different way, approach a person in a slightly different manner so that we get better outcomes because we know it does make a difference. Um, If I can't see you coming because my visual range is getting smaller and smaller, how much data I can take in with dementia, then coming from the front But how quickly do you move? Well, you got to slow down because I can't handle speed. So having the experience of having someone come toward you when you have binoculars around your eyes by putting your hands up there and give you a real different feel for, oh, yeah, that's really scary. And if I can get you to feel that and believe that, then the opportunity exists that when you go to try it out, your brain will go, oh, she's doing the same thing I did. She jerked back. Well, let me slow down a little bit because you've experienced it in the role play.
0: Well, I think that would be a valuable course for any of us to be able to take. Um, I read an article about a young nursing student recently who actually moved into um, a nursing home to experience what it would be like to live there.
1: Yeah, it's very different to be uh, trained by using textbooks and exercises that are academic. And yet when we live with dementia, it's a very intimate, personal kind of thing. It's very different to have someone actually look at your private parts and and make a judgment call on them as opposed to um, talking about that in a textbook. Well, they will become incontinent of bowel. Uh, They will become incontinent of bladder and they seem unaware of this. And it's like, okay, so what will that look like when it's my mom and I'm trying to figure out how to help her? Get out of the depends or brief that I have her in, and um, yet she doesn't even seem to notice that anything's wrong. And how do I how do I begin that process without
0: making her feel like that toddler? Because that's not going to help. And also for the daughter who's trying to do that, she has her own feelings about it as well. Oh.
1: Absolutely.
0: I mean, people walk into this thinking, okay, well,
1: yeah, it's about memory and it's about repeated stories. And then as the disease progresses, you find out, oh, it's not just about that anymore. And it's not just about the inability to find the words. It's the inability to recognize the object and the word. And so suddenly I'm trying to brush my hair with a toothbrush and I've got I've got butt balm all over it because I misunderstood about the toothpaste or I'm trying to get in the trash can. And your brain is just going, this is just like a toddler. And it's like, no, this is a full grown brain that's lived a life and full size person, but
0: they're really turned around in what's
1: real. So
0: this is a perfect opportunity, I think, for you to explain to us your gem classification system.
1: Yeah. So along with figuring out that it's not just about what you lose, it's also what you keep. There are systems out there that look at dementia progression as a series of losses. And one of the best known ones or one of the ones that most popular right now is called global deterioration scale. And it actually that's the name of it, global deterioration. And so we talk about a seven point scale of deterioration. And it's like, whoa what a way to look at the next eight to 12 years. I mean, it's gonna be deterioration after deterioration. And I think that downward spiraling affects both of us. And so I said, well, what about what they still have? Are they still human? Yeah, do they still have abilities? Yeah, even at the end of the disease, they'll have one third of the brain tissue they had. It's not enough, but it's still there. So how do I value what's still there? and recognize the need for support and care that matches what's existing and what's missing. And I thought, well, okay, well, let's think about people as precious as gems and they're all unique and they're all different, but there are characteristics at a certain gem. Like diamonds are different than pearls are different than rubies and emeralds and ambers and and sapphires. And so I tried to come up with a gem system that calls on old awareness and knowledge that many of us have for color and gem and then apply it to the progression of the disease. And so diamonds are clear and sharp and rigid with lots of facets to them. And there can be diamonds in the rough and there are solitaires. And But what's really cool about them is they are brilliant. Um, they still are, but they're rigid and inflexible and they don't like change. Um, but they can shine and they can cut you. And so you have someone who's fairly early in a disease state. And the challenge is, okay, how do you care for a diamond without going diamond? Um, Because we can become gems. I mean, when I'm frustrated and I'm not getting my way, well, who's being a diamond? So it allows us to, to not separate ourselves by, you have dementia and I don't, but can I stay sapphire, true blue? Can I be like the ocean or the air and supportive Can I figure out ways to be present for you? Um, Or do I need a break away from you? And late in the disease, we have rubies who are unable to switch gears. They're like they have a stoplight on for fine motor. But for big movement, they can get on the go, but then they can't put on the brakes. And they can't, they don't have language, but they have sound. And oh, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. And so that repeating kind of thing but my hands don't do as they should, but I can still clap and I can squeeze and I walk, but I have falls. Pearls are probably to me the most, I tried to find the right gem and I selected a pearl because it's built on a grain of sand layer by layer, but it's hidden inside this ugly oyster shell. And if we're just looking at the body and what's on the outside, we see nothing of value. But when we look inside, we can still find our person, even at the very late states of this disease. And I think that's horribly important for us if we're going to be present with somebody.
0: You know, I, I'm i feeling very sad right now. Hearing you talk I, it just makes me miss my mother so very, very much. Anyway. Huh.
1: You know what, I, Diane? I am so glad that you had that moment because that's probably the most important thing is to remember the people for the beauty that they were uh, and to give ourselves grace to feel that sad moment of sadness and then to appreciate yeah but I had those moments
0: right so you know what I'd like to do next Yeah um, a little levity uh, I would like to go over a couple of those moments and um, that I don't think I handle very well and I'm pretty <laughs> <laughs> you can give us some tips on better ways to communicate in the beginning. I used to say things like, mom, don't you remember? So she's saying the same thing
1: over. If I say the same thing back, what's going to change? Nothing. Nothing. So if I want something to be different, and when she says, so give me a, um, what time are we going to go eat? Why don't you give me that one? All
0: right. What time are we going to eat?
1: You're wanting to know what time we're going to eat. Hey, mom, let me ask you something. Are you hungry or just curious? I'm hungry. You're hungry. Oh, so when we eat, are you wanting something um, like a like a big meal or you think we should just have like a snack? What do you think? I want a Kit Kat bar. Oh, a Kit Kat, my favorite, too. Oh, yeah. Oh, you know what? If we're going to have a Kit Kat bar, maybe we should go walk a little bit. So we'll deserve our Kit Kat bar. What do you think about that? I want one now. I know you do. I know you do. And I want one too. Tell you what, let's take a walk. So we'll build up our calories. We'll be ready to eat our Kit Kat bar. Could you help me out, mom? I need to go get something.
0: And then help me because I need your eyeballs. Okay. Well, come on. (laughs) You made it seem so easy. (laughs) I do make it sound
1: easy. That's because I screwed up the whole lot to learn it.
0: (laughs) All right. It's funny, my mom loved the Kit Kat bars, and, and early on, um, when we had caregivers helping us at home, and they would take her grocery shopping, and the, doc- oh. the doctor had told me that she was not eating well, and uh, what her primary menu item was Kit Kat bars. So I explained to her, the doctor says, you you need to cut back. I explained that to the caregivers, and one day I got a phone call. The caregiver was out in the parking lot of the grocery store, practically in tears. She said, "Your mom is at the register having a tantrum because I told her she couldn't buy that many Kit Kat bars." <laughs> yeah, how'd that go for all of you? <laughs> well, they, the the agency that provided the caregivers had a, an emergency meeting, and uh, we all decided that she, let her have her Kit Kat bars.
1: Yeah, when this is one of the challenges with people who give advice, um, but don't live with a person. Yeah. Is yeah, like, um, that's all well and good. Yeah, I agree. She shouldn't have very many Kit Kat bars. How would you like to explain that to someone who forgets she ate the Kit Kat bar right after she ate it? Right. And who right. has always gone shopping whenever things were not where they were supposed to be. I mean, she would just go shop. You're not going to fix her by saying no. Um, so it's like, oh, yeah. Hmm. So how are we going to do that? So what we do is we buy the Kit Kat bar, but then we secure them so that there's only a, one out. Or you even take one out and cut it up a little bit and say, you know what? We only have one left. We'll have to get some more the next time we go to the
0: store. We have a whole cabinet of them. He doesn't need to know that. Well, that's exactly what we did. Oh, see how smart you were. Yes, we are. Or we were. Okay, so... Here's a a big one for a lot of people, not being safe to drive anymore.
1: Mm.
0: And um, she loved driving. And so she was really upset. And I finally had to hide the keys, which was stressful for her and for me.
1: Yep. Yep. Um, Yeah.
0: (laughs) Years later, she would say to me, I used to like to drive, didn't I? I guess I shouldn't Mm -hmm. be driving anymore, should I? But that took several years.
1: So could I, have done, could I have
0: done it differently in the beginning?
1: Yeah, yeah, probably. I mean, this is probably one of the
0: top five
1: things that happens um, because driving, at least in the U.S. and in many other countries, is that symbol of not only just independence, but how am I going to live my life if I can't drive? mean, suddenly things that I took for granted, like just running the store or going to church, I can't do those without somebody else being involved. And that feels uncomfortable if it hasn't been my lifestyle. So we, unfortunately, who drive and forget what it's like not to drive, forget sort of how important that feels and how much it says about us, the ability to drive oneself, to get where you want to go when you want to go there. And so we don't approach it as though um, you've just been given a terminal illness. You are no longer the same person that you've always been. And I think we underestimate the importance of that for many people. And so we approach it a little too um, cavalierly. We approach it, it, and it's not your fault. That's that's the advice you get. But sometimes what we want to think about is, for right now, the doctor isn't wanting you to drive for a while until he figures some things out. So for right now, he's asking that I do the driving and you do the navigating for right now. And I hate it. I hate it for you. You've always been the best driver. You've always, you were the one that taught me to drive. And I hate that we're having to do this. But for right now, that's the recommendation. And we're going to have to do that. Or he said, you know, this could get out of control very rapidly. We could cause harm to someone. And the important phrase was what? Of everything I said, what stuck in your mind?
0: That you knew how important it was to her. And,
1: or right now. For
0: right now, yes.
1: You can't rob me of all hope. If you rob me of all hope, I'll fight you tooth and nail. Because once my hope is gone, what do I have left? Right. And so if we're removing something that we know is incredibly important, for right now becomes a real important phrase. And I hate it for you. That's really important too. You You're know, not alone.
0: It's It's interesting because that's that's actually the approach we used when it became clear that she couldn't live at home anymore. And so we found uh, this wonderful facility, Avita, a memory care facility, and yeah. uh, um, I engaged the doctor. He agreed. And so we had mm-hmm. a written kind of like order. Yep. But I used that same phrasing with her. I said, Mama, the doctor's concerned about a couple of things, your safety, being here alone Mm -hmm. And he would like you to go to this place called Evita for a short time so they can assess how well you're doing and what you might need. And I think in her heart of hearts, she knew what was going on, but we reiterated it. I said, I'm sorry, but this is what the doctor is saying. And she was there, I'm going to say a week and a half, every day that I came in, she was like, when am I leaving? Why am I here? Who did this to me? Mm about the 10th day and she said you know diane i'm not unhappy here and i Mm -hmm. said oh why tell me about it well i have my Mm -hmm. own room and i i have this wonderful view of the front door and the airplanes Mm -hmm. i have a private bathroom and um Mm -hmm. it became her decision and i said well what do you think do you do you think you should stay here and she said i i think i might as well (laughs) Uh-huh. And it became Perfect. her idea. And I, I couldn't yep. have asked for more. You could not. Yeah.
1: And, and that's the difference between this ability to adapt, which people do have. But diamonds have a hard time with change. And so she just really needed to make it be hers and not just everybody else's. And it took some time for her to settle in and find the setting to be she could be herself right. in some way. Right. She wasn't going to lose herself.
0: Are there any other basic tips you'd like to give us? Or is there something that you were hoping I'd ask you and I failed to?
1: Uh, well, the one that I usually like to ask care people, uh, whoever they are, is like, what do you still find joy in when you're with your person?
0: Well, I can tell you the joy that I felt was the joy that she showed me. Yeah. Uh, because she was always so happy to see me and she would do little things like uh, just put her hand on my cheek and hmm. uh, which would melt me of and, course and i have to admit we you know we had a typical mother daughter relationship growing up and so to be just to have her extreme gentleness was wonderful yeah Yeah, and I think yeah. Well, so
1: the point of asking that is all too often when we get in that caregiver mode, um, we forget to look in the mirror and say, "What am I still finding joy in?
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Am I still finding pleasure in the being with this person in some way? If I can't identify what gives me pleasure in the relationship." That's a really dangerous place for a care person to be. And I think we forget sometimes to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, what am I still finding joy in?
0: I discovered new joy. Cool. I discovered her ability to nurture. Yeah. Yeah. So you do so much. How do you take care of yourself?
1: Well, I do some running. I'm a little bit of a runner and I love going out outdoors and just being in nature and around the world. Um, I love finding those ways in which what I offer provides sustenance or support or it gives me the energy back when people feel energized by what it is that we do together and it gives them hope. Um, And I have lots of good friends and family in support of the work that I do because we feel like it makes a difference in the long haul. Um, people, People need something.
0: For caregivers who are feeling overwhelmed and not able to find any joy, is there a tip that you can give them, something they should do right now?
1: One of the things is to pause, take a time out and go, okay, I need help. I need help. I need to find help. And it's more important I find the help than I keep doing the thing I'm doing because I'm just going to do us both in. And being able to take that step back and realize not everybody's meant to be a care provider for somebody. It is not everybody's cup of tea. And you can love somebody completely and not be a good hands-on provider. So finding how to get what that person needs so you get what you need so the two of you can make it through this um, and not destroy one another, I think is really important because I've just run into way too many people who feel like it's their duty but they've come to really look at the person they're caring for and, and they don't even like them anymore. Mm-hmm. And they don't even like themselves anymore. And it's like, ooh, this needs to stop because that's there's nothing about that that's gonna get us in a good place. And we need to change mm-hmm. this dynamic. So pausing, taking that step back and saying, I need help. And finding that somebody, whether it's you on the internet or, or someone else to do that first reach out, that first touch to say, I'm not in a good place and I need help.
0: Can you tell us where on the internet can somebody go to your website and get more information?
1: Yeah, we made it fairly simple because the name is so strange. We just went with teepasnow.com because it is an odd name. So T-E-E-P-A-S-N-O-W dot com. And we have a a contact line there if folks want to get up with us more intensely. We have lots of free YouTube and video and information. Yeah, because if nothing else, come to us and we'll send you somewhere. We'll try
0: to find the right supports because it's just a big, big mess out there if you've never been in it. And it's a big hole and it's deep. I'll include a link to your website on my blog and I'll look for some more resources too that might be helpful. That's great. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with us today.
1: Oh, it was my absolute pleasure. It It was great getting a chance to spend some time talking with you and to hear about how you made it through this journey, but didn't just survive it, you, you found some pleasure in, in the moment.
0: Absolutely. I've been talking with the world-renowned dementia care expert, Tipa Snow, and I'm Diane Atwood. You've been listening to the Catching Health Podcast. For more health reporting that makes a difference, check out my blog and other podcasts at catchinghealth.com.